My name is Luke Pretz, uh, and I'm going to be facilitating this conversation that the CLR James Forum is putting on uh, between these amazing uh, activists and organizers uh, in the universe of building temp, uh, tenant power. Um, over the last month, we've had some really productive and interesting conversations preparing for this event, and I hope you're as excited as I am to see what sort of conversations happen here. So without further ado, I'd like to, uh, to say thank you for everyone to come. And I wanna announce that we do have Spanish language translation on this event. So uh, I think you'll see a globe pop up when the trans translation stuff begins. I click on it and then select the language that you prefer to hear. So Gabriela <laughs> will explain for us uh, in Spanish really quick. Hola, buenas noches y bienvenidos todos a esta importante reunión. Y quiero recordarles que tienen todos que elegir inglés o español y van a ver en, un, en unos momentos el globito en la parte inferior de su pantalla que va a decir uh, language, Spanish o English. Y uh, tienen que escoger una de esas. Si su dispositivo les muestra tres puntitos, van a oprimir primero esos tres puntitos y los tres puntitos los van a llevar al globito que va a decir interpretation, después español y después finalizar o done, depende del idioma de su uh, dispositivo. Y les voy a dar más instrucciones en el canal de español. Bienvenidos todos. Gracias. Uh, thank you so much, Gabriela. I really appreciate all of your help here. The globe has popped up. So go ahead, click the globe, select your preferred language. You'll be set there. And if you need to change the language, you can always click the button that says the language and switch over. So I'm clicking mine here. So once again, we have a few more people showing up. And I just wanted to say that we do have translation available. Uh, and there's a globe in the bottom of your screen that you can click. And it'll give you a choice. So if you'd like to hear this in Spanish, we have a translator, Gabriela, who's fantastic. Uh, and you'll be hearing her uh, translate for us. And I'd like to just go ahead. We're four minutes into this thing. So I don't want to wait too long. And I just want to welcome everyone here. Uh, to the CLR James first uh, inaugural meeting. Um, this is a great group of people to do the first meeting of this with. We've had some amazing conversations in the lead up and I'm not gonna vamp too much other than to say, I just welcome on behalf of Solidarity. The way this is going to be formatted is we're gonna do some quick introductions and then we're gonna go to a, a sort of meso level discussion about the relationship between our mass work as socialists and uh, building the socialist movement. And then we're going to talk about kind of the, the core theme uh, of their work. We're going to do 15 minutes of question and answer after that first 45-minute period. And then we're going to go back uh, and kind of have a reflection on their concrete work they've done so far with these organizations and conclude with some more question and answer. And we'll explain the question and answer a little bit more once we get there. So without further ado, uh, Brandon, why don't you give us uh, our first introduction? Gladly. Thank you, Luke. Uh, hi, everyone. My name is Brandon. I use he, him pronouns, and I'm a leader with KC Tennis. And I'm really happy to get to share some of what we do with y'all and learn a bit from some of my fellow panelists. So happy to be here. Maybe uh, people from City of Life via Urbana can, can introduce themselves. Uh, I'm Steve Meacham, and I'm with City Life via Urbana. And I'm here with two colleagues who are... <laughs> Hey everyone, my name is Gabriela Gabi. Um, I am one of the digital communications organizers here at City Life. And pronouns she, her, Aja, and I'll pass it to Renal, other colleague. 
Hi, everybody. Good evening. My name is uh, Ravel. I'm an activist, community organizer with City Life, and my pronouns are he, his, and li in my Haitian Creole language. And I'm so happy I'm with you guys, and I can't wait to see all the wonderful things we're going to talk about. Thanks, Renell. And last but certainly not least, uh, LA Tenants Union people. Uh, I don't know who wants to start. I'll jump in. Um, hi, everyone. I know Vanessa was already pointing. Um, <laughs> hi, everyone. My name is Lizette. Um, pronouns are she, her, ella. Um, I am from Los, Los Angeles Tenants Union, specifically from the Northeast local. I'm super excited to be here. Hi, I'm Vanessa McKenzie from um, LA Tenants Union as well. Pronouns are she and Aya, and I am currently in the Mid-City Local of Latu. Happy to be here. Thanks for this introduction, uh, everyone. And, you know, I think we're starting out this conversation on maybe a little bit more abstract level. But as socialists, I think one of the most important things that we do in our mass work is uh, we think about, one, helping people improve their material conditions. But two, as socialists, we want to build a mass movement to change society. So in a, in a democratic way and in a way where working people uh, are empowered and have control over their lives uh, and the circumstances that they exist and uh, be together in community with everyone. So I think the first question we're gonna ask to kind of prompt this conversation is this. Um, how do you all think about your work as socialists? And specifically, how do you think the work you do in building tenant power builds the basis for a mass socialist movement? Big question, would anyone like to get the ball rolling here? I can jump in real quick. Um, well, I think that the, the answer is kind of like in the inverse, you know, in the sense that I don't think there is going to be any type of, of mass movement towards socialism without having, you know, a deep investment in, you know, renters and tenants, you know, as a, as a community, right? Uh, like when you think about the working class population of the United States, you know, a large share of them are going to be, you know, tenants. And I'm willing to bet more likely than not, many of them are going to have experience in, either the threat of houselessness, being houseless themselves, uh, the threat of eviction, of living with, you know, a slumlord. And so if you're talking about trying to build a mass movement of, of socialism in the U.S., you know, that's going to be like a key demographic that you have to, to understand and, and care for, I think. Yeah, maybe. Okay. Yeah, someone from L.A., why don't you... Well, we went to the East Coast first last time. Maybe uh, the West Coast can go now. I mean, I, I will jump in and say that I completely agree with what Brandon is saying. And I think it's also one of those where we have to kind of teach and understand and try to show these people how to kind of build this movement because I think they inherently have done it, but in a very more, at least for us in LA because of the predominant like Latina community that we understand that they have the capacity and ability to do the things that you do in a socialist movement, but that they are so used to doing it just within their own kind of people, um, within their own families, within their own, all these things. So I think it helps to show them that it's something that we can do in a much bigger scale and that it's possible to do on a much bigger scale. It's not just kind of like every man for themselves. I think um, connected to that also, one thing I 
um, I'm always kind of considering is the fact that housing as a motivation for organizing or a focus for organizing is an inherently approachable um, subject. You know, um, we all either encounter issues with housing, issues with the lack of housing, issues with um, houseless neighbors, like whatever it is, trying to find support, seeing that there isn't support. I think that it is an aspect of life that touches everyone. And in a way that just will naturally kind of, um, I don't like the term, even the playing field, but I think in a way that's what I've noticed, especially during the um, pandemic is that suddenly there was a lot of commonality when you're organizing around housing. Yeah, that's wonderful. And, and, and just to comment, it's such a delight to be here with Los Angeles and Casey and thank you Solidarity for organizing it. It's worth looking at how, um, why it is that tenant organizing and organizing around housing justice, for us that includes organizing small owners against foreclosure, it's worth looking at why that get or how that gets radicalized. And so therefore why it leads to a socialist demand. And, and to that end, it's worth looking at how the housing market, how the capitalist housing market is structured and, that, and, and, and how we use that. So for instance, in a capitalist housing market, there's all kinds of examples of people trying to buy cheap and sell dear. And there's a situation where you have these enormous profits without any production. I mean, even in factories where people, where workers are exploited, there's production at the end of it. In real estate, there's often no production whatsoever. Or there's the whole question of who creates real estate value. I mean, the landlords like to say that, you know, they've invested in everything and they're creating the value. But in fact, tenants are paying their mortgage for them. Tenants are paying for all those improvements. Um, public tax dollars pay for new subway stops, new parks, harbor cleanups. Um, thousands of hours of people's time goes into, uh, you know, demanding and fighting for, you know, uh, reducing crime, for instance. And all that tremendous social value is privatized by real estate interest and they walk away with it. Flipping neighborhoods and flipping buildings as a direct racist uh, you know, a project is part of what real estate does. And that kind of direct, direct flipping is sort of a, it's, it's, a, it's an evil thing, but it's a normal part of the capitalist housing market. And so maybe just to say that um, all these things that, about capitalist housing market that are so normal is what allows, is what means that our organizing against it becomes radicalized. Mm. Um, so I don't know if uh, Renell or Gabby, you wanna have anything you wanna add? Yeah, I, th I think this is interesting, especially I, I like this sort of framing of things as like this thing that one, I think Steve, you were getting at is this is like housing is kind of something that's created in many ways and supported by working class people because they have to, rent buildings. They've been deprived of that property. What's also interesting to me about like uh, uh, Lizette's answer and also Brandon and everyone else's is, is this idea that um, working class people already have a lot of structures uh, that they organize themselves in. You know, they have certain communities, whether it's along uh, racial or ethnic lines or age or hobby or 
or sexuality or whatever, th there are people organizing spaces in a collective way and in kind of a non-capitalist way in many regards and might not realize it. And I think, you know, bringing people into this space is incredibly useful, not just for like making things happen and making things better, but it also is like incredibly empowering to see the things that you're already doing in your, in your daily life with your family and friends and, and other members of your community uh, are things that are quite similar to what you need to do to build a different sort of society. I don't know. Brandon, do you have anything you want to add to the conversation so far? Uh, no, I just want to pick up on something that one of my comrades, Miss Ruby Watson, said in the chat. Hello, Ruby. Uh, I'm going to have you be in my spot next time, and I'll be in the audience next time. Uh, but she said that that it is by design that we're in this situation, right? I think that's a, a thousand percent true, that the capitalist interests in this country want it to be you know, difficult for, for tenants to collectively organize. They want us to be fragmented because we're a lot easier to control that way, right? And so that's kind of a big part of what I think everyone on the Zoom call and maybe some of the folks in the audience are all trying to do when we talk about building tenant power is kind of flipping the script on, on the way things are designed and redesigning like a future that is more hospitable to us and more hostile to, you know, capitalist interests and, and whatnot. Ronell, Gabby, Vanessa, Lizette, anything you'd like to add? I'm really enjoying this conversation so far. Uh, I can jump in. It, it sounds so nice as I'm listening to uh, everything I'm hearing here. I, it dawned on me that uh, it's simple, so, but yet it's not simple. Uh, if we look at things, uh, the poor have to pay to basically, uh, they have to work to pay. It means in a way they conduct to struggle to survive. And the rich, basically they get paid to play and basically looking for maximum profit, you know, uh, the biggest return on their investment, but that return is a part. It's a part of us that it is. It's part of our work or of our being, of uh, of who we are. And uh, this fight, uh, it, it will require that that we pay a price, you know, to win it. And I think each one of us, every day, must must have a price to pay, you know, because. Uh, saying that, that, that we're gonna defeat this system is one thing, but teaching the folks what it is to, to defeat the system is some other thing, because a lot of folks, uh, as they say in English, they drink the Kool-Aid. They believe they, they were sold that image they must be. Even when that system is crushing them, is hurting them, they inspire to do these things, you know? So I, I think how our work is cut out for us, you know, to teach and, change and elevate folks expectations. Yeah, I know. I think this is a really uh, powerful point, I think, you know, and it, it kind of fits in nicely here, which is that this idea that everyone uh, kind of has a price to pay uh, in a sense. Uh, I think another way is like by organizing people, you're kind of getting people by to put themselves on the line with others for the collective. And in many ways, like one to see other people doing that is incredibly empowering. 
to know that you're in this together with many other people. But two, like once you do your like, I don't know, for me anyways, once I did my first action, you know, it got easier and easier. And also I got more and more involved with with the collectives I was working with. So I think that's that's a core part of this is that this is not just about this is about drawing people in and getting them to activate themselves consciously uh, in this project. And, you know, once one activates themselves, there's many other ways uh, and places they can go with it. And I think we've kind of got to the end of this 10 minute period for the mezzo level conversation, but it's going to continue throughout this. I'd like to turn a little bit more to some more concrete type stuff. Throughout all of our conversations in the lead up to this, we had three of them. The big through line, the bit, the thread that ran through everything uh, was that the cornerstone of everyone's work uh, in one way or another uh, was this notion that the people who are closest to the problem are, are those most capable, most able and most ready to solve those problems. And I think that connects like very nicely to what we've been talking about here, this meso level connection about building the socialist movement. I'd like to see, you know, how do, how do you guys see this get expressed within your own work, uh, uh, building tenant power? I'll jump in. Um, I know, I think one of the biggest things that we have done uh, that I know began in the Northeast local, which is where I'm from, and has now, I think, kind of become a thing. These tenant solidarity meetings that we have. Um, so these have been really good in, I think, building that tenant power because it kind of takes away from us as the organizers, you know, so to speak, that like know everything or at least assume to know everything um, can answer or can provide some sort of help in the process. But to have them acknowledge that they are all or at some point have been in this situation and have either gotten themselves out of it or somebody somewhere has helped them get out of it. So they begin to share these ideas amongst each other. Um, and I think it worked out very nicely in terms of instead of feeling like we needed to have all these things done in one meeting, just kind of setting that aside as like a moment for them to do these things and to eventually get to that place of coming in with this like fear of like what's happening to then being like, you know what, like this is what happened to me and this is how you're gonna get out and you're gonna be okay. But to hear that from somebody who was in that position um, just makes it, kind of help at least it has helped us and like I said more and more locals are now doing that in our own work um and so I think that's one of the biggest things we've done for at least tenant power um as well as tenant associations building those has been immensely helpful in these situations not only for capacity but also to kind of bring people together people that once were walking in and out of the same building but never said hi are now just helping each other out discussing all these issues and are now just like, I got your back just like you got mine. And that's interesting to see. One thing that, um, that happens when those directly affected come into the room together is that they are the people who are motivated to be the shock troops against the system. And I think it happens in two ways. We talk a little bit of city life. We use this phrase cultural hegemony, which was originally, I guess, put forward by Gromsky, prominent socialist. And the idea that there's all these ideas in the air that undermine our resistance, as Renault was saying. And the people who are directly affected are, mot are motivated to grab those things, put to bring them down to the table and demolish them. 
things like the fair rent is the market rent or I own it, therefore I can do whatever I want with it, um, that kind of stuff. And then the second thing that happens when they come into the room is that they're motivated to begin to construct a different morality. We have a lot of uh, rituals that we use in our weekly mass meetings where people are, um, you know, rituals that overcome alienation and feeling alone and isolated. And we see over time that the people who are directly affected by the crisis are motivated to begin to construct this alternative morality where they, it's not their fault. They begin to understand that it's, it's the fault of some very powerful actors, but not them. But those are, those are powerful things that happen in this movement. And they, and they change the nature of the people that are, including us, they change the nature of the people who are fighting these battles. Yeah, and just kind of just to build off of what Steve just said, you know, we wouldn't be able to empower those directly affected to lead until we've supported them in overcoming that fear. And overcoming that fear, which, which you know, Lizette was touching on just recently too, like until you overcome that fear, you're not gonna want to start door knocking, right? On your street. Until you overcome that fear, you're not gonna feel comfortable enough to share your story because you're buried by shame, right? Until you overcome that fear, you're not gonna wanna talk at that protest, be that speaker at the protest, be that person talking to the press, right? And, you know, one of the ways in which City Life supports, I guess, that overcoming of the fear is, you know, having this safe space every single week, every Tuesday, every Wednesday, where people can come to a meeting they know is always going to happen. You know, back then was in person, which, you know, was ideal, right? But now it's on Zoom. And, you know, this meeting is, it's, it's a beautiful place because over like 120 people join every single week collectively in the English meetings and in the Spanish meetings and making sure that there's a sacred space for these, these languages, right? Because it's intimidating, like being like uh, just knowing Spanish and going to an English meeting, you're like, what the heck? Yeah, like, it's like <laughs> so, you know, the, the importance of, you know, just having meetings in, in your native tongue is, is part of like, one of our very important organizing strategies, alongside with you know having those very people, having those directly affected, having those tenants, having those directly affected homeowners, be the spearhead of this mass, mass outreach. Be the ones who are knocking the doors. You know, it's great when allies support us, but you know, there's been a saying in city life recently, like if a white person is knocking your door, it's usually not good news, <laughs> and that scares people. You know. Um, so it's really important, like, to have those very people, like, be out there passing out the flyers, knocking the doors, being the ones on social media speaking, being the ones making those captions. And, you know, collectively, like, with amongst our organizers and, and by, you know, having these Know Your Rights trainings um, every so often and, and having, like, like, weekly themed questions, pop quizzes during these meetings, we grow our popular education where in, in a way in which, you know, we're doing collective casework, not only as paid staff, but our tenant leaders are also leading collective casework with their compañeros from work, with their, the people they like talk at, at the corner store, right? They're doing that collective casework 
in those little like spaces we were talking about earlier in which you know we feel comfortable in organizing in whether it's our family work the corner store the laundry right this collective casework happening happening not only within the organization but just like all around as well and and our mass actions they happen at least before the pandemic we'd have an action almost every single week meaning we'd at least be on like a news outlet right and so many people would learn about city life because they saw it was like oh like you were the ones on the news like i i saw you were talking about you know you could fight an eviction like that's why we're here today that's why we came to the meeting because i i saw you on the news right and you know within those meetings we have political discussions at the end of every meeting right and we were talking about the importance of you know politically developing our our tenant leaders our our, our working class homeowners because it's one thing knowing that you can fight against an eviction and fight against a foreclosure. It's another thing learning that this is part of a systemically racist design, right? And starting to like understand and, and break down like what is systemic racism? What is white supremacy? What is cultural hegemony, right? For a lot of people, it's like hegemony, what? Like this just like flies through our heads, right? We gotta we gotta really break down what this means um, in these meetings and 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 you know just just having it in, in a different language isn't enough, right? Sometimes these city agencies are like, oh, you want this in Spanish? I'll make it in Spanish. We read it in Spanish, we still don't understand it, right? Just because you translate something to a different language doesn't mean that it's understandable to a working class person, right? And that's where the importance of political dis political education on, on our front is really, really important and, and vital. Like if it wasn't for the political education we were doing in, in neighborhoods, there would have been a lot of luxury developments that would have gotten away with so many things. So many things that our community members did not allow because they understood what was happening. Because why do they understand what was happening? Not because the city broke it down for them, but because the movement broke it down for them, right? We broke it down together. Um, and yeah, that's that's radical base building right there. Super. Uh, Vanessa and Brandon, you guys haven't said much uh, in a bit. I didn't know if Vanessa, you wanted to hop in. I saw you unmuted earlier. Oh man, I've been exposed. Um, yeah, actually. <laughs> Um, but I'm happy I waited a little bit because um, I did want to give like a little example that was kind of um, a follow up from what you said, Luke, in the first part. And then also what Lizette and Gabby were just um, talking about, which is that we have been since um, I guess maybe November of last year, we've been working to organize um, a tenant council in Los Angeles, which is a group of tenant associations under the same terrible corporate landlord. Um, there are buildings in Lizette's um, area in the Northeast. There are buildings in K-Town, Mid-City. I think we're, we're currently speaking to tenants in like 12 buildings and, and working on you know TAs in each of those. And then as this corporate overlord starts to like suck up other buildings, we're just like on them thanks to our incredible research team. But what, I, what I've really kind of been noticing outside of 
you know, general organizing, but specifically within the realm of this council and working with the tenants so closely with such like specific needs, because obviously each TA has their own vibe, right? Like each building has their own issues. Each building has their own demographics. Some have been like mostly displaced and now the building is more than half empty. But what I realized in that is as we brought people together, the community serve as more of um, an antidote to fear and an antidote to this kind of um, uh, power that's being um, wielded by landlords rather than power being wielded by tenants. So I think that as Gabby was talking about overcoming fear, sometimes we don't get there, right? Sometimes we have these horrible landlords um, lying and saying they're going to call immigration on a monolingual Spanish speaking tenant who is now terrified because they live in an illegal basement unit with two kids, you know, like, and they can't get any uh, repairs done on their unit. So they're already terrified. And that's like a very deep psychological place to try and pull somebody out of. And so being able to now not just say, okay, well, we have spoken to um, a bunch of people in your building and there are seven interested people like we're gonna try and meet. It's nice to be able to say, we have 10 different buildings, you know, tenants from 10 different buildings are gonna meet in this park on Saturday, we're gonna talk about all this bullshit that this you know, company is pulling and we're just gonna put it out there. And it's about transparency. And even if we don't get 100% to like overcoming the fear, we get to, well, we're all gonna stand right beside you as you go through this or as you do this. So we're gonna to come to the guy's door with you or whatever it is. And I have seen remarkable, like truly remarkable um, transformation happen with tenants in a matter of like sometimes minutes, you know, it's uh, one time we had a really large action in Koreatown where we were, this was the second action we had done like this, but we had just um, brought in a couple new buildings and one building, the largest out of all of them and arguably maybe the most tormented by a really terrible um, landlord who was Spanish speaking and did attempt to use that as like a, I'm on your side while I'm also secretly filming you and, you know, like doing terrible repairs. That building had been so affected by his just horrendous presence that they were like, we don't want the, the march to come to our building. Like we're super afraid that it's going to start something with this guy. We had kind of, you know, went to a bunch of other buildings. Some of us organizers were like, we can still maybe like fit in at the end if we think they're comfortable. And so as we kind of got closer to the end of the march, they had seen tenants come out of their houses or get on the megaphone in front of their buildings and talk about what was going on. And they were like, actually, yeah, like we want to say something. And like, I can tell you that for me, that was one of the most moving things that has happened in my life because I was working with that building and I was like, oh my God, they're so terrified. Like they are frightened of this man who I have met and I felt frightened and I don't live there, you know? And then they were just, they saw the support they had. They weren't 
afraid. And even if they were afraid, they were like more angry and more ready to pull back the curtain and say like, we deserve better. We have these people on our side and they will be here and they won't leave. And I think that that has just been an incredible example in Los Angeles where we're already fighting like separation, uh, whether it's language, class, whatever, to see that kind of change occur um, on that scale has just been powerful. Thanks for that. Um, before we keep on with this conversation, I do want to remind everyone that if you would like to use the Spanish language translation that we have for this, there's going to be a little globe down in the kind of at the bottom of your screen there, and you can click on it, and it'll give you language options. So if you'd like to hear this translated into Spanish, it's there for you. Uh, the other thing is that um, there's going to be a Q&A button. I saw a few people raise their hands throughout this, and we're going to do Q&A here in a bit. Uh, so if you could, if you have something to ask, go ahead and put in the Q&A thing, and we'll, we'll, we'll get to it here in a bit. I just want to say I'm really enjoying this conversation. And this, the conversation, especially around language, uh, made me think about something, which is this kind of like, how do you how do you maintain like obviously like providing translation services or ensuring that there are meetings in people's uh, native languages uh, for them to participate in is one way you can make a space inclusive. But what are some ways that you make a space inclusive so you can include a broader segment uh, of the tenants? Uh, that you're trying to trying to reach and trying to include in this process of you know class struggle, you know, and I think kind of related to this is another question, and we don't have to answer them all at once, but I think it's important to bring up, which is you know political development uh, and political conversations are incredibly risky, especially when you're like bringing lots of people together who may not know each other, who may have like way different backgrounds, you know, they may not, they may not have the best opinions yet. Right. Uh, and so how do you make this space like inclusive, but also how do you make it inclusive in a way that allows for people to grapple with and kind of struggle with maybe some of the biases that they have, or just to have the hard political conversations that you need to have if you're going to be successful as organizers, especially as socialist organizers. Big question I know, I saw Ronell's hand go up. We'll start with Ronell. <laughs> wow, uh, it's nice, thank you. Uh, look, I mean, that's a good question, uh, but uh, the deeper side of it, it's not just uh, the language, the, sp the spoken language, it's sometimes the, the inside language, the emotional language, that our folks speak, you know, the fear, the shame of, of uh, making sure their neighbors don't find out what's going on with them or uh, when they're getting evicted, when they're getting pushed out. Uh, the fear they don't want to look at, they don't want to understand that they have collective power. They don't want to think about that. But if you see it this way, uh, since most of us were kids, you know, uh, we get disciplined when we do something wrong, just the threat of that discipline, there is a whip if you run away, if you do this and that, there would be a punishment, it is gonna hurt. 
So with that analogy, almost everybody understood, well, I must do A, B, C, D, otherwise they would sanction me. So when folks come to City Life, most, most of them feel that way. Uh, but when they start losing their shame, they feel they, they, they're ready to tell their stories. And uh, when they hear, oh, Kathleen Nord will take you to court and they would say, when? Just let me know. And it's not just the person who's saying when, it's others that say with you, I'll take time off, I'll go with you. They don't know who they're messing with. They begin to bond, you know, they speak in, they, they probably speak different languages, but that bond start growing. And I want to defend you, you want to defend me and others. And that way, when they come to that, when it comes to the, the, the part of, of the uh, political education, most people understand what's, what's going on is wrong. They just don't have time to analyze it. Once you show them, you put a mirror before their faces and you just ask them, can you look at this? And I, I bet you when they start looking, they start they're feeling upset now. Why did I let this go for so long? And uh, within a short time, we could see those members that came to get help. Now they become leaders, they become doers, they become educators. They want to actually go ahead of us to say these things are wrong. So it's, it's, and it's, and most of them, they're doing it for free. They volunteer with us. They go through almost every action, everything we do, they wanna take a part of it. So that is a gift that keeps on giving, just a gift of, of having a bond with somebody, just saying, we'll be there with you. And a ritual that we do at City Life, when somebody tell us their story, usually what we ask them when they stay out of the group, we just ask them a question, are you ready to fight to stay in your homes? And we ask them to answer us with energy, to, to make us believe that they mean that. Once they do that, you hear the whole room saying, guess what, we'll fight with you. When that happens, usually folks get emotional. You see the tears start coming down. For the first time in their lives, they hear somebody saying, we'll fight for you, we'll fight with you. And usually it's somebody that don't even know them. So that connection goes further than anything else that we could do. And that is the axis of, of how we approach folks. How once they come in, they get the help, they get educated, they meet attorneys, they do a whole lot of things. And then they become agent of change themselves, asking us, what should I do next? What else can I learn? You know, oh, I'm facing this and that. Can you help me? And when someone say, I'm getting evicted, they ask you, is there conditions in your apartment? Did you take the pictures? Did you send a letter? Did you do this? And they, it's so wonderful. But all this takes time, you know, and it takes motivation to help them understand where they are and what they want to do. Thanks. Before we continue with this conversation, Stevens asked me to ask Gabby, uh, could you announce to everyone that we have Spanish language translation in Spanish, please? Buenas noches todos. Solo un recordatorio de que este presentación se está haciendo en inglés y en español y ustedes pueden utilizar el la opción de interpretación aquí en Zoom, pueden buscar el dibujo de como del mundo y presionan ese, ese, ese dibujo 
Deben salir unas opciones inglés-español, escogen español, después presionen en el lenguaje y desde ahí presionen finalizado o done. O si están en sus teléfonos, van a salir tres puntitos ahí. Presionen esos tres puntitos y te va a salir algo que dice interpretación de lenguaje. Selecciona eso y selecciona su lenguaje adecuado y otra vez termina con finalizado. Y espero que se puedan sintonizar en su lenguaje adecuado. Thanks so much. Uh, I really appreciate that. Uh, who wants to hop in next in this conversation about uh, having the tough conversations uh, and, and making this space a, an open uh, and inclusive space for people? Um, I can go in at least. I know for Latu, we have a pretty big presence um, and we're continuing to try to build it in a more kind of local base, but language justice. So I think that Everything that Ronel said is beautiful and it is exactly what we need in order for that unity to kind of happen. Um, and so I think in order to get that, we obviously have to, have to build equitable communication. And so we've focused a lot on language justice as well. And so there is constant interpretation at all meetings. Um, I know that when Zoom, when the pandemic happened and everything moved from in-person to Zoom, we tried to as much as possible tackle what was obviously digital divide, you know, you're talking about the working class, they may not have access to the resources that a lot of us do. Um, and so we did what we could, at least within our local, and I know Latu also in, in some aspect did it, is we found ways to get technology to those tenants, to keep them connected on Zoom, to find ways to do that. And obviously when we did that, we had to establish a much bigger language justice presence. Um, you know, in-person meetings were always interpreted. And so I think that having that equitable communication very much speeds up the process that gets us to what Ronel was talking about. Um, and I think that that is very important and something that is, is a huge focus uh, because I think it helps, you know, to, we understand, or at least, you know, I can give the example of in Los Angeles, you know, predominantly Latinx community is we understand that amongst each other, you know, like I can look at Gabby and just kind of be like, you know what I mean? Like, you get it, right? Like we've been in the same position, you know it, but it's not so easy sometimes to inherently look at someone like, apologize with Luke and just kind of be like, you get it, right? Because it's just not, it's not there. And it's unfortunate because it's a stigma that is built within a lot of BIPOC communities. And so when we can cultivate that equitable communication, then we have those moments and I've seen those moments happen even within my local, which has always been predominantly, if not all BIPOC, And now because of gentrification, there's a huge mix. And when the pandemic hit, that hit a lot of those non-BIPOC individuals who were like, whoa, I'm having issues with these landlords, the same landlords that displaced those BIPOC people so that you can now live here. And so in order to bring those people together and these two groups of people that have never, in my opinion, have ever really been on the same kind of issues, so to speak, um, and housing has really brought that out, especially during the pandemic, And so I think having that equitable communication has allowed for me to sit there and listen to maybe Luke, you tell your story and I'm like, holy crap, he does get it, you know? And then it's like, okay, so it's a lot easier and it gets us there much quicker of being like, so this is above, this is far more than just my class and my race and my this, this is a much bigger issue. And a lot of those aha moments have happened, especially with a lot of the lower, very, very poor BIPOC community. Um, and so I think, you know, having that has really helped to do that. Um, and so I think, you know, having equitable communication is a really big thing 
um, you know, not just spoken language, but also I've seen in other organizations having for like the deaf community for all these things that need to also happen. Um, and I know that we need to work on that. At least I feel like we do within LATU, um, but obviously there still, there hasn't necessarily, I think, been a need for that, so to speak, uh, but it doesn't mean that it's, isn't something that we need to work towards as well. Thanks. Brandon, would you like to hop in here? Yeah, well, I've been quiet for a little bit, so I'll I'll jump in. Although I'm not sure I can say anything that, you know, Ronell and Lizette didn't already hit on the head. But yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll address the language issue and then kind of the, you know, tough conversation political education piece too. Um, so like with the language issue, like it, that is, you know, honestly something that Casey Tenets, I would say, is still, you know, and I think everyone is still kind of in the process of making sure that we are being as equitable as we can when it comes to making what we do accessible to, to everyone, regardless of what language they speak. Um, you know, just from personal experience, there was one, you know, canvassing event that we did and the community that we were canvassing was, you know, a very large, you know, Somali kind of immigrant community. And that is really tough when there's, you know, a language barrier there. Um, Cause oftentimes, you know, you know, you might knock on the door and like the parent might not understand what you're saying, but their like eight-year-old kid might know what you're saying. And so now you're in a situation where it's like, okay, I'm trying to organize these people through this like really young person, you know, which that wouldn't be an issue if we had someone there that knew how to speak the language, you know? And that was kind of when I, I had that aha moment, like, oh, this is why, you know, language justice is, is important because it's almost like a key to to different neighborhoods like in, in our city, you know? Um, so, so that is definitely like an important thing that, that we're still trying to uh, develop, I think. Um, you know, on the other hand, when it comes to like, you know, how do you allow for a base that's broad uh, while managing the, the differences that come with having like a broad base? Uh, something that we say at the start of, of every meeting um, is that tension is good and it's worth leaning into, right? Um, so I think oftentimes there can kind of be a, a tradition when we're in a group setting, you know, when we discover that there's like a point of tension between members in the group, we want to like back away from it, you know? It's like, oh, there's, there's disagreement here. There's conflict here. Well, let's just, we'll walk away from it. Let's come back over here where there's not any tension, you know? And I think it's really important that we actually really dive into that, that tension, right? Because by doing that, I think you not only learn more about like the underlying issue, but learn more about how you can resolve the, the conflict, right? Um, so so there will be times when, you know, when people in, in meetings might disagree with one another. Um, but rather than backing away from those disagreements, we really try to dive deeper into them to kind of see what the root cause of disagreement is and what, if anything, can be reconciled. And to end, I just want to say that, you know, that's an important process in itself, but it's also important, I think, when you take that skill and you apply it to, you know, situations where it's Casey Tenet's meeting with someone in the community or like Casey Tenet's meeting with like the mayor, right? In those environments, you know, the, the same principle applies. We don't want to back away from any any tension, right? Because, uh, like, if we go into a meeting and with, like, an elected official and they, they tell us something we don't want to hear, it's important that everybody is trained and comfortable with sitting in 
that tension rather than backing away because that's a really powerful stance to have, you know. And I think sometimes it can catch a lot of them off guard, you know, because those they'll they'll disagree with you and they'll expect you to be like, oh, okay, like I'm I'm sorry, my bad. Uh, we can move on. Uh, but when in reality you're like, okay, no, well, let's let's talk about the disagreement. It, sometimes that can freak them out. They're like, whoa, you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't ready for that. <laughs> um, so that's kind of why we believe it's really important to not to run away from tension, but to really kind of jump into it. Vanessa, I saw you lean forward. Do you have something you want to add? No? Oh, okay. Hey, Luke, you're very dangerous at this moderating and watching the panelists thing. Um, I did have something to say. <laughs> um, I, um, it was kind of, again, as sort of reaction to what the other panelists were saying, but I think that one thing that has really struck me organizing in Los Angeles is the divide between um, like longstanding community members and um, gentrifying new whatever tenants that are coming in and kind of posing a threat and maybe they don't know it because the system is built for them to like feel comfortable and not realize what's happening. Um, and I say that because when I moved to LA, I moved to Highland Park because I had friends there I didn't know anything about the neighborhood and I just saw Lizette's eyebrow go up. Uh, I didn't know anything about the neighborhood. And then I found out I was in like a really controversial building and that building is actually, <laughs> was like the main building that started the council that I now help organize. But um, I've since left Highland Park either way. What I realized was that talking, like when you're working with tenants that have lived there, you are not just speaking about housing anymore. Like when you're talking to new and gentrifying tenants, it really is like, this is what you're moving into. This is the system that is built to like, make you feel like you have these cute coffee shops, but actually you have displaced, maybe not you personally, but this has displaced like a huge body of people, right? So it's a very specific, tangible conversation sometimes not so tangible. Um, but when you're talking to these longstanding tenants and then you realize, oh, there is a whole kind of backstory here that we're walking into. Like we're asking them to organize and they don't like each other, you know? Or like in one of the buildings, it was like, we're asking you guys to come to these meetings. For some reason, we don't realize why you won't come if the other one is coming. And then you realize somebody slept with somebody like 15 years ago. And it's just like, oh my word. Like I just walked into a situation I was not trying to like get involved with. But these are the things like I often have to sort of remind myself that as an organizer, you know, even just kind of watching it from the outside sometimes, that there is respect that must be paid in order to make space for people to participate in like their own liberation. It's not about playing the savior. It's about being a resource and allowing voices to just like take the space and helping where you can. And I think that has been so critical as far as the kind of attempt to really change consciousness of people we're working with is to say, like, I understand that this is new stuff 
for you, like whether it's the political conversation, whether it's the, you know, now having to think about housing and maybe you always could pay your rent and now you're in trouble, you know, like it's about kind of meeting them where they're at and, and, you know, and maybe giving them some nudges and speaking to them on their level or just giving them resources to learn on their own and then being there to talk to. And I think that that is approach that is an approach that's made me feel more comfortable even to help organize is to just remember the role I play and remember that it's about them and then it's about us, you know, like it's not about me coming in with all my knowledge because I helped on some casework before, you know, but I think that that is really important to think about that occasionally it can feel like we're just um, like, I think that sometimes because we don't have the greatest sidewalks in LA and I'm basically a full-time pedestrian. And, you know, it's like, I think about all of these like roots, right? These like old trees and there are these roots and we have tried to pave over them, but it just like keeps coming up and breaking up the concrete. And that's how I feel sometimes going into a building and being like, here we are, like, we're ready to organize your building. Hope you're excited, like tenant power. And they're like, oh my God, I, I've lived here 30 years and I don't talk to the person down the hall. Like, why are you trying to get me to now work with them? I don't understand. So um, I just think that's like a kind of thing that we have to be really conscious of is that there was life before this and you have to respect that when you're coming into it from the outside. You just described like the most extreme mood. I'm just going to go ahead and say that. Like, I've been stuck in that situation of being like, hey, let's all get together. And it'd be like just two people who you're like, I don't understand what's going on here, but I know something is going on. Um, yeah, exactly. Especially when you're like, aren't we here to do like good work? Like we're here for a good reason. And then they're like, I don't know why you're here actually. <laughs> <laughs> so we're kind of at the end of this phase of the conversation and we're going to open it up for some question and answer. For those of you who are familiar with Zoom, or even those who aren't, um, there's a little Q&A button uh, that you can hit there. You can type in a question real quick. We'll try and get to it. We've got about uh, seven questions here, and we're, we're going to spend the next 15 minutes just kind of seeing if we can sort through some of these, uh, maybe partly uh, lightning round style. So the first question I have... Uh, there's a bunch here. The first one I'll pick anyways is from Mark. And it says, uh, is there a specifically articulated plan to win working class renters to socialism or, and recruit them to an explicitly socialist organization? Uh, how do you go about it? And if that's the case, and how often does that occur? Um, and then related, I think, in some ways is, you know, how, how can this work be related to uh, trade union work, not just tenant union stuff? So. I don't know. Two big questions. I think the first very much related to the mezzo question, and I'm sure people have a diversity of answers here. We can come back to that one if people have need time to think. We got another one asking, uh, this is Ruby, who Brandon's indicated is from Kansas City. Uh, and she asked, uh, are there any Mac or millennia properties in your area? I don't believe in Los Angeles. I'm familiar with those properties, but I don't believe we have any in LA. Okay. Uh, doesn't look like Boston does either. Uh, let's see here. 
how is the cancellation of the eviction moratorium affecting your work uh, and your communities? I can jump in on, on that one. Uh, so one of the things I do with Casey Tenets is I'm a caller on our uh, COVID-19 slash like solidarity uh, phone hotline. Um, and, you know, the, the hotline kind of formed because when COVID-19 first began, uh, there was a huge like moment of, of crisis, I think, for a lot of tenants and renters in like every city, but Kansas City too, right? You know, there were all these different sources of money for people who uh, were getting laid off, didn't have jobs. You know, there was like rental assistance and whatnot. People didn't really know where to go for help. And so we kind of formed this hotline, you know, for two reasons. One, to try to give them some direction on what resources existed, but also to try and, and use it as a way to like build power in our community, right? Because these people calling us, are the exact same people that we're trying to, to organize, right? They're directly impacted tenants um, who are getting, you know, pardon my vulgarity, but getting screwed over by the housing market right now. And so the eviction moratorium was something that we would always refer people to who are, who are facing eviction. And I think that could be an entire separately conversation on its own on whether or not that eviction moratorium was successful in, in doing what it's out to do, or if it was even, you know, listened to by different court systems, you know, in KC, there were still evictions under the moratorium, but still it was something that you could refer people to. And with the end of that moratorium, you know, there was kind of like a, a very a big, like, hole, I guess, when it comes to protections for, for tenants, because now we don't even have that to, to, to offer someone who calls the Casey tenants hotline and says like, Hey, I'm getting evicted like in 10 days. Like what, is there anything that like you can do, you know? Um, and so the moratorium ending is kind of like, I guess shifted the way that we're approaching a lot of the, the work that we kind of do with that hotline, you know, to, to, it really kind of underscores the urgency of why we need to build power now you know, uh, now that that moratorium has gone and there's nothing left really to to protect tenants, it's more important now than ever that we express solidarity with people who are facing eviction. And it's more important that we try and get them connected with the work that we're doing um, to, to try and change some of the conditions that led to their eviction in the first place. So hopefully that answers your question uh, a bit. Would anyone like to hop on and... and and add some more that's a great answer i mean i know us in the tenants union we're actually on this upcoming monday we're kind of having a really big discussion on kind of our shift in maybe not so much strategy but like immediate focus and i think it's we're attacking it we're kind of going very heavy on the political attack right now which obviously isn't usually like a very day-to-day -day thing a lot of it is more mass organizing and all these meetings and kind of getting each other I get getting the things that we get done, um, but we are looking at how we can attack on a political front, especially within the courts. So we're really talking about how to like fuck up the courts essentially. Um, and so we're doing it in a way that we wanna find ways to extend the process, you know, to like put like a, a wrench in it all and try to figure out all these strategies where we can just kind of stop them and put obstacles in their place at every point or at whatever point we can get to it. You know, and essentially also maybe even try to find a way to change 
a little bit of the the climate and the and the way that these decisions are being made. Uh, so we're going to kind of just really emphasize and focus on that. Um, and so I know that's one of the biggest things we're doing right now with the eviction uh, moratorium ending. You know, I know it has shifted as the pandemic has continued. Every time where we thought it was going to end, different strategies have occurred. But this is kind of where we're at right now. Um, but it doesn't mean that we haven't still also continued to focus on how we can help these people uh, in terms of like the financial debt aspect of it all is still always in the back burner and how we can continue to help all these tenants because it's a lot of debt that is being accrued and I'm sure it happens everywhere. Uh, it, it's been happening everywhere, I should say. Thanks. Um, another question we had is from Joseph. Uh, hi there, I'm a member of Ann Arbor Tenants Union and we're currently organizing a building and the landlord slash management has caught wind of our organizing activities and has started to Im intimidate some of our tenant leaders. Uh, we're in the initial stages of organizing, so the number of tenants who are a part of the tenant association is pretty small. What advice do you have uh, for keeping up morale and strategically fighting back? I don't know, maybe some people from Boston could hop in on this question. Oh, I could, I could I jump on this one, Luke. Uh, it's basically meetings, meetings, meetings. Uh, or not just to sit and talk, but to, to analyze things, to know what's going on, where you are, what, what, what the landlord is doing. And uh, when, when we actually have our meetings, uh, we usually have attorneys there to actually count, counsel how folks say, no, you have the right to do ABCD they cannot do these things and uh, you should record or uh, if they do certain things, you know, you should all uh, write uh, or send a text, you know, have a date on it or send an email, send a letter, anything that could show that you communicated uh, your displeasure with what's going on or if something should be fixed, it's not fixed. If, if the landlord uh, threatened you with eviction because you have a meeting, because you have eyes at your doors, at your windows, uh, you need to understand that you should no longer speak uh, just by yourself for yourself, but speak uh, on behalf of the tenant association. A good example is uh, that we in Boston have a big, uh, big time investors uh, named APM, Advanced Property Management. They were beating a bunch of folks of IPOC, so we organized them and. Uh, they were threatening if folks have meetings, you know, all the things they can do. But, but at the end, they didn't have the power to, to do all that. They told the people they will never, never, ever negotiate. They were the big people. But uh, within a year of our organizing, Oleg Uiski, the uh, investor, he came, he had to meet with us. And I personally was somebody that he just uh, have, he just didn't like me. Uh, he would speak with Steve and said, Steve, uh, I, I agree to this meeting, we're gonna talk, but uh, uh, I don't wanna speak with this guy. Uh, like, uh, I don't have a name. So that's how it came. But at the end, he was forced to negotiate with us. And actually, uh, we had an agreement that folks uh, never thought would happen, but uh, when he saw those 13 members, you know, who live in his building, came to face him to say, no, you're not going to do that to us. 
that had a, a big impact on him. He couldn't just uh, do things uh, as he used to. Now he's saying folks are running prostitution rings. There's drugs in the building. There's this and that. Is actually was changing the narrative because we had them. So the best way to do is to make, to do your homework, you or record what happened when they happen, and have a building captain. You know, train folks. You know, if you're not there, can somebody replace you? When we having meetings, who can uh, have an agenda prep? Who could check with others, see what is needed, what happened? We could have these things on the agenda. Once you do this. You on a roll, and then folks, uh, as they see done a few times, they learn of it. Even when you absent, they can they, they do it, and they keep on going. And uh, in due time, more more folks will come because as long as the threats don't come to pass, because technically you cannot uh, tell you not to meet, you can meet. And if you can meet inside, then step outside, find another location. And now with Zoom. It's even easier. You could do all these things, just meetings, meetings, organize even more. And uh, you could reach out to City Life if you need any more help. We'd be happy to help you. Uh, you could just go on, on clfu.org and then access anything you need to access. We'll be happy to, to help out. Thanks, Ronell. Um, one question we had. Uh was what does your political education program look like? How academic is the material and how do you plug tenants into plug political education? Any specific reading recommendations are welcome. City Life, we have a whole lot of different forms of political education. We have something in every single mass meeting. We have something in every single tenant association meeting. The first time we meet somebody, we're looking for a political a way to talk to them politically about this, how the system works at, at the door even. But once somebody gets involved with City Life, we have a series of different kinds of training programs. We have something we call the 100 cadre training, which is designed to look at how the system of capitalism works along with side white supremacy. We have something called the displacement defenders training, which teaches how to be a tenant organizer. We have anti-oppression trainings, with, which look at you know, um, interpersonal, individual, ideological forms of oppression. And we find that the people who come in with their cases and who stay, because that's what we're all looking for. We're, we're hoping that the people who bring us their problem don't, don't then leave as, so, as soon as the problem is solved. Uh, we find that the people who stay and don't leave are people who have been through those trainings because they put together their, that enables them to put together their, their individual problem and you know, in this larger context. And when there's a chance, it would be good. I, I would like to speak to the, the first question that you came up with about socialist organization. But, Go for it. Yeah. Well, I, I just really simply, I, I think that the left is really small compared to, you know, the people who are faced with displacement and gentrification and uh, eviction throughout all the cities that we work. So right now, we really need organizations like, like you have here, who, are who may not be, we may not say City Life, Vita Urbana slash socialist organization, but in all of our trainings, we talk about capitalism and socialism and white supremacy and heteropatriarchy. So out of all that training and out of the experience of the organizing come leaders, new leaders who are one of the most precious 
contributions that we can make to the struggle long term. But we're not quite at the point of worrying about whether or not there's a socialist organization handy that they can join. Thanks, Steve. Um, let's see, there's so many good questions here. Diane asks, are you, are you working uh, on right to counsel for those being evicted? Um, several cities have adopted this reform, which at least gives tenants more time uh, and sometimes results in victory. This is one of our campaigns uh, at the Detroit Eviction Defense Group uh, that Diane's a part of. So right to counsel, meaning uh, right to have access to a landlord uh, in the case of eviction. Is, would anyone here like to speak to that or could they? I could jump in real briefly. You know, this is something that Casey Tenants has kind of been debating, I think, in terms of whether or not this is uh, a, a fight that we want to, to take on. There's a few other groups in the city that I think are ready to, to take on the fight. So that's kind of like a pending topic right now, I think. Um, I will say, you know, just in my kind of personal belief, you know, that one, like right to counsel is like, that could be really, really important because, you know, when people are getting evicted and they're sent to court without a lawyer, it might as well be an automatic loss, like right there, you know, even if there is a reasonable chance that that person could stay in their home if they did have a lawyer, just the sheer fact that they don't have money, which if you're getting evicted, it, it probably has something to do with you not having um, a ton of money for a lawyer, right? Um, so it could be a real big game changer, but I want to also add too, it's important that we, you know, make sure that right to counsel is a step on the journey to a world with like zero eviction filings, right? Like that's, that's the end game, right? So like right to counsel is a really good place to, to be, but it's not like a final destination, which not saying anyone in this Zoom is, is asserting that. But I think there's a danger in that some, some you know, politicians might, you know, offer you right to counsel and be like, okay, problem, problem solved, we can go home. You know, they have a right to a lawyer. When it's like, no, 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 like that's, that's, that, that's phase one, okay? We're in phase two after winning that, right? So that's just kind of, I guess, my personal thought on, on that. Okay. Right, right to counsel is good, and we should also recognize that not all lawyers are trained to work with lawyer, with organizers, and they can sometimes have the effect of really demobilizing things because they take it they take the cases individually unless they're trained in a different style of of lawyering, community lawyering. Yeah, and off of Brendan's point, um, interestingly enough, here in Massachusetts, um, there's a point where we had one of the strongest eviction moratoriums in the state, thanks to, you know, the movement's efforts. And, you know, when we lost that, we had the federal moratorium, which honestly by design didn't even protect against all evictions and didn't include homeowners. Um, and the way our governor tried to, you know, like make up for allowing the state eviction moratorium end was by saying, oh, I'm gonna create the eviction diversion program and I'm going to find, I don't know how many hundreds, thousands of dollars to solve the problem by hiring a temporary lawyering program called KELP, uh, COVID eviction. Legal help program. COVID eviction legal help program uh, to solve the problem. Like if people have lawyers, the issues are solved, there's no more evictions. But the thing is the court's still happening. 
polices in, in the courts are still enforcing evictions at the end of the day. And these lawyers are just, you know, prolonging the eviction cycle by like a week or two more, right? Unless they're connected to the movement, right? We could really advance that political pressure with legal defenses, right? Use public pressure with legal defense, which here at City Life we call the sword and the shield model, right? To get to the offer, the sword being public pressure, the shield being legal defenses, right? Just having the shield, just having legal defenses is not good enough to get to that best negotiation. We need public pressure. We need people to feel empowered enough to share their stories. We need people writing letters. We need people sending texts to communicate. Oh my God, Steve's getting the certain chills. Um, <laughs> and it's like, it's providing just lawyers are saying, oh, if we provide just rental relief, the money's gonna solve the problem. The money isn't solving the problem. What we need is policy that actually prevents evictions and foreclosures. Here in Massachusetts, at least one, the main policy that, that City Life is focusing on is something called the housing and equity bill, housing equity bill. And what that bill would do would literally temporarily pause all evictions, non-payment, no fault, all evictions and foreclosures and reform the rental relief program, which has been great, but has not been easy, has not been simple and has not been distributed fast enough, right? And we, we pushed a bill similar last year called the housing guarantee bill. It failed, it did not pass, but a small section of it passed, which is called chapter 257. And that clause is literally saying, if you have a state rental relief program in process, then the judge cannot make a fine, cannot approve a final execution order. Right, and, and that, that clause has helped more people than the actual federal moratorium, right? So yeah, that, that's just to say like, money is not gonna solve the issue. City Life, you know, we, we in our weekly meetings, we provide legal support with movement attorneys, um, but we know just that attorney is not the answer. Our coalition partners are focusing on right to cancel, which is great, we appreciate them, right? because this movement is, is an ecology, right? We gotta be pushing these different things, different organizations, different grassroots efforts, push different parts of, of what we need in this ecology to really, to protect, the, to get what our working class people need locally and, and, and nationally and globally, right? We need, you know, we gotta mobilize hundreds, thousands, hundreds of thousands, if we're talking about global, millions actually, um, so we're about to move to the other phase, but I saw that Vanessa was like scanning the bookshelf and might have some resources to share before we move to the next thing. Yeah, one thing, and I kind of um, dropped in the chat, but in case um, anybody didn't see it or for the Spanish language channel, one thing that comes up um, in LATU, we do um, a series of like discussion sessions called Escuelita, and it and we do like a monthly, like it's like a Saturday school kind of thing where we take on topics and discuss. And it can be anything from, you know, basics of tenant organizing and what that looks like to how do we fight, you know, uh, politicians involvement in yada, 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 like whatever it is. And we'll take those topics and discuss them. And often 
one book that comes up in either those discussions or in our annual assembly or just in like TA conversations is Pedagogy of the Oppressed, which I know a lot of um, organizers are familiar with. Um, this is one, another copy because I lost my first copy that I'm actively going through again. Um, but, you know, it's one of those things where I feel like, and I kind of wanted to comment on, somebody had put in the chat, is it helpful for tenants to know they're being pressed because of a crisis of capitalism or is ideology not significant? I think, oh, does somebody just <laughs> reply to that in the chat, in the chat as well? Yes. Um, but I think that that is, you know, often, again, this is kind of paired with that concept I, I mentioned earlier about like, you know, coming into somebody's life and having respect for it. We, as organizers who maybe think about this stuff and like try to, you know, strategize amongst each other and we're like, oh yeah, it, you know, Paulo Freire says, and we're just like talking about it. And then tenants are like, what are you talking about? Like, I am, don't have time to read those books. I have four jobs, you know, like, and I think that it's really good to share things like this and to talk about it and to not have to like feel like, oh, I've got to like water down the message. But I also feel like you, again, have to meet them where they're at and not necessarily go, oh, we're talking in this real high, like philosophical, you know, like here are all of the masters, like whatever kind of thing. It's a good resource, but it's also like, you cannot overstate the importance of just breaking down systems with people in a way that they understand and like looking at the example of what does that look like now? If we're talking about capitalism, we see effects of it. How is that affecting you? And then being able to say, well, yeah, like you can look in here and it's, you know, it talks about some of that stuff if you want to read it and not going like, oh, well, you have to stick to these books in order to organize and like make a difference. So that's really all I wanted to say about that. <laughs> Thanks so much. Yeah, no, I think that's a really fantastic points for from everyone. And I think right now we're going to move to this kind of section that we call uh, reflecting on our experiences, maybe kind of think about, we'd like to discuss, you know, what do, what do you, in your experience as organizers in these organizations, you know, what are things that you think your organizations do well? What are some of the challenges you also face? We're going to hit this for like 20 minutes. We're going to do a little bit more question and answer. Uh, and then, yeah, we'll conclude. But go ahead. Yeah, what do you think? Uh, what's something that you all do well? It feels like a trap question in an interview. But it is definitely, I think it's worth knowing because people want to know what works. I think if, if Vanessa can agree with me or anyone else that is out there in the attendees uh, from LATU, um, I think we have really, at least for ourselves and in the capacity that we currently have as, a, as an entire org, have done really well in building tenant associations and keeping our focus on tenant associations. So I think we've kind of caught on to like, this is something worthwhile and worth focusing on. Um, that, and then obviously I think language justice is still a work in progress, but it's a heavily thing that is incorporated and we are constantly working on it. And I don't think it's that we have a lack of it. I think it's just that because shifts have happened, you know, pre-pandemic, during the pandemic, now like post-pandemic, not post-pandemic kind of weird um, place that we are in right now, you know, because we're doing 
some locals are doing hybrid meetings, others are kind of already in person, masked and things, and it's all very much on the comfort of everybody. Um, so it's kind of all these different things and all these different shifts, obviously, in order to have equitable communication language, Justin will always have to shift towards those changes. Um, so I think tenant associations and maybe language justice would probably be one of the top two things that I think we've done really well. Um, and obviously politi political discussion within the, within all that um, is really good. You know, when we need to talk about language justice and why it's important, there's a lot of political stuff behind it. Um, and a lot of things that you could always remind people that it's not just about equitable communication, but all these other things that come from it and how, when these things aren't available for you in like big political aspects, you know, when you're trying to vote, trying to do this, you're not aware of what's happening, you know, equitable communication could easily solve that. Um, and so like, we always kind of try to remind people of that um, so that they know that that's something that they should be fighting for, not just within our organization, but in the outside world, at their jobs, at their healthcare provider, all these things, because that helps with the bigger picture of the mass socialist movement in other areas aside from housing. I just want to ask a follow-up question. Maybe Vanessa or Lizette can answer this. What is a tenant association? What is it? Is that the same as a tenant union? Are they synonymous? What's what's the difference for you guys? I'm happy to answer that because I also wanted to give Lizette a on-the-record shout-out because she has often played the role of the translator in some crazy Zoom calls. And I know it's exhausting, so shout-out, Lizette. Um, so... The way I think it's best to kind of explain it and how it, we tend to explain it to tenants is like more of a, a modular kind of um, uh, approach, a modular system where it's like you have the tenant union, which for us, LATU, LA Tenants Union, is like all across the city. And then beneath that, we have locals, right? So we have like Northeast LA, mid city um you know like all of the different um we have so many that now i'm like forgetting them um but Park, we, west side uh, vibe, yeah. vibe you know all that There's so many <laughs> um so we have those and then within the locals is where you get to the tas or the tenant associations which are based in buildings so that those buildings would feed directly into like the mid-city local. So buildings in my area would come to mid-city local meetings. And then, you know, from there, those locals kind of have their own representatives that, that go to full union uh, wide planning meetings or, you know, might have representatives that are on the media committee, research committee. Um, so really when it trickles down the tenant union are you know those are like the little lego bricks that build this whole system that we have as i mentioned before we're venturing into this you know idea of councils which is being able to group together the associations under their own umbrella um which is has been union-wide right because we're finding buildings uh with shared landlords in different locals so the, the tenants associations are really the building blocks um, of this solidarity and this movement for us because it ensures, you know, the sharing of knowledge and support and being able to push against a landlord, not on your own, but like everybody coming together to say that's messed up and we're all going to fight against it and not leave anybody in our building behind. Do you think that's a good <laughs> description of that? Uh, yeah, no, definitely. I think it uh, that definitely shows how the, it plays into our organizing. 
Um, but I think like the associations themselves, yeah, it's literally just bringing these tenants together and letting them know like we're going to write a list of demands, but as a building, you know, it's not just you have your demands and you have your demands and you have, yours. yes, you're all going to have your individual demands, but we can't deny that there are bit much bigger things that affect all of us. And at the end of it, you know, we can fight for both. You know, it doesn't have to be fighting for yourself. You can fight for yourself and you can fight for others and you can just fight for the betterment of everyone's living situation here. Um, and so getting them in that mindset. And so you build these, we build these associations and we send out these letters that say, you're no longer dealing with us individually. You now answer to all of us at the same time, at once, no matter who it is that you are looking to talk to. And so we do that by establishing one source of, of area that they can communicate, which is usually an email that every tenant has access to. If at any point they obviously don't listen to what we are demanding or asking, and they continue to harass individually, we have followed up, or I have seen many buildings who have followed up with letters being like, we know you're harassing XYZ, and we've told you, you talk to all of us or none of us. And it's a way of reinforcing that and letting them know we're not standing down, we're a united front. You didn't think it was going to be like possible, but it is. And we have maintained that and we, and that is how we can sell it. Um, and it is very, very integral into what Vanessa was saying. Yeah. And I think um, focusing that power at the TA level ensures, ensures that people are really um, fighting for themselves, but also focusing on their specific needs because it doesn't just become, oh, come to the local for like help and then leave or come get generic advice and then leave. It really is like, you're, this is where you're at every day. You have your specific issues, whether it's the elevator is out or like whatever it is that you know better than any of us who are serving as a resource could know. So it really helps to solidify the power that um, tenants are reclaiming. City Life Theater Urbana or... Casey Tennants, who okay. wants to go I'll next? Jump, what, what do you guys I'll do well? On, yeah, I'll jump on in quick look. I take something that we do well, uh, not only that we're able to connect with the community even uh, with COVID a lot more than before, but something that we're able to do is that we connect eviction uh, as a uh, health hazard, you know. And uh, we teach folks how the lay of the land, the community they live in, how stuff are basically uh, uh, well arranged against them. I'll give you a good example. If you go to uh, in the communities I, I usually I live in, is basically that you could see across the street or uh, jumping down at, you know, across the street from each other. And uh, you will see uh, Burger King, McDonald's, Kentucky Fried Chicken. You see ch uh, a Chinese place, a place to cash your check and you see a liquor store, liquor store, liquor store. And I, I leave that uh, at last so you guys can see it. In a way, they're telling you everything that you need is basically right there. Short walk, you should you get everything you need. But uh, they don't tell you the health hazard uh, that, 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 would, that would come with, with you consuming these things over time. Uh, but also what happened, you don't make those decisions, you know they already made them for you. They just waiting on you to agree. And after a while, you just can't afford to be here anymore because it's time for new people to come in. And uh, when we explain it that way to them, when we, we sit down and ask them, what do you see there? 
usually folks comes with more radical explanation than we do at the time. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see. And I think things that we're struggling with now is uh, basically uh, the folks that we organize with. They're not, uh, let me see, computer literate. Uh, most of them uh, with COVID, we had to go uh, virtual completely. It was hard in the beginning to communicate with them, to teach them about Zoom, to help them come to meetings. It took us all, a while. We had to have a hotline, ask them to call the hotline in English, in Spanish, get back to them, let them know when we're having meetings, if we're having a rally. It took a while. But uh, still now, some of them are still struggling with it. And uh, imagine those folks who live in area that uh, they don't have uh, enough internet coverage. There's a lot of things in our communities that are not working. And uh, we basically use all these things when we have conversations, when we're having those, those trainings, you know, to help folks identify with what's going on and see where you should be versus where you are. Flag one of their. Um, You're good. Can I flag one other thing? One other uh, thing for City Life. Go for it. Um, I mean, we spend a tremendous amount of energy and resources tracking people from when they first come in with cases to becoming kind of a member of the movement, to becoming a leader of the movement, and an activist and organizer, and becoming our staff. Almost all of our staff are drawn from the base. So we spend a great deal of energy trying to figure out how to do that and how to fit in political discussions with rallies and everything else. And so that's something we do well. And if we were going to flag the thing we don't do well, it's probably the same thing that we don't, we, we have to put even more resources into that. We have to do that much better than we do it. Um, so I just wanted to flag that. It's, it's always struck me that how I feel both ways about that. Gabby, do you have something you'd like to pitch in? No? Cool. Uh, Brandon, what about you? What is something Casey Tennant uh, does well? Yeah, um, I think Casey Tennant is very, very good at, uh, at bringing the smoke when, when bringing the smoke is necessary, uh, doing like direct actions. That was, that was one of the first things that I did, like, I attended one base meeting and then I was at a direct action outside of city hall. And I was just like, Holy cow. Like this, like the, the level of, of organization and planning that goes into it is very, very serious, you know? Um, and that might not be something you would understand like outside looking in, but now that I've kind of gotten to learn more from this organization over the past year, um, I think that, that we do a really good job at, at doing that and not being afraid to, um, confront people who, who think that we would be shy to like confront them. You know, I kind of alluded to this earlier, but sometimes, you know, people will get it twisted and, and think that, Oh, cause things were like good in the past. You can get away with, with snubbing us or blowing us off or, you know, throwing us under the bus, assuming that we're not going to, to, to ramp it up a notch like in response. Right. So I think that we're very good at not letting people get away with, with, in our city with doing stuff like that, uh, with keeping people, keeping people's feet to the fire, so to speak. Um, so yeah, I'd say that's, that's something that we're, we're pretty good at. Do you have an example of bringing the smoke when the smoke bringing is necessary? 
Yeah, I'll tell uh, I'll tell a personal story real quick. Uh, so, uh, you know, there's there's one, um, you know, particular landlord in in our city that you know a member of our base has been uh, struggling with for for a long time now, um, and we found out that this person lives in in one of the more affluent kind of parts, like one of the affluent suburbs in in Kansas City, right? Um, and so he was blowing off demands from uh, the tenant union we we're trying to form in this complex for a while. And so we thought that we would take the demands to him. Um, and so we canvassed his neighborhood prior to showing up and we actually found out that lots of his neighbors don't like him either. Um, and when they learned that he was a slumlord, they were like, yes, like, come show up on his front yard, like, tell him what's up. And that's what we did. Um, and so we had an action, we, we rolled up to this um, relatively affluent neighborhood. And, you know, the way that people came out their houses looking at us, you would think that, you know, they, they had never seen anything like that. And they probably hadn't ever seen anything like this in their neighborhood before. Uh, but we rolled up to his yard and we had a, you know, a slate of speakers give really powerful testimony on how this slumlord is living in what's almost like a million dollar neighborhood while his tenants don't have AC or don't have, you know, you know, they're having maintenance issues. Um, and so we took the fight to the streets and to his front yard and the way that his neighbors responded, you know, Half of them came out recording us and like, yeah, get them, go. Um, you know, that that was that's probably one of my favorite actions with KC tenants. Uh, we unfortunately had to leave because uh, he did call the police on us. But we we got the message across. And and I think they, they we definitely put him and a lot of other folks in the city on on notice with that one. Amazing story. Um before we move on to maybe the, the other side of this coin of what we do well, does anyone want to add anything? Okay, well, oh. Uh, um, I'll just Rennell? uplift what Ronell put on the chat, which is that, you know, City Life, um, a long-term strategy we're, we're working, working towards and actively doing right now is taking properties out of the private market and into social ownership through land trusts, or community development corporations, which are nonprofits, um, and teaching our members the power of collective bargaining. Great, thanks for that. I think that's yeah, great stuff to bring up. Uh, next up is you know what is some of the what are some of the biggest challenges you all face as as people heavily involved uh, in tenant organizing? What what do you think are some of the obstacles that you have? I can jump in real quick since I already kind of addressed it earlier in the event, I think, but, you know, something that we're, I think we're still trying to figure out is like the, the language barrier, you know, um, you know, Kansas city is, is small, but that doesn't mean that we don't have like a diverse you know population. And so it's really important that we figure out how to not only like connect with, you know, for instance, like Spanish speaking communities or, you know, Somali speaking communities, but making sure that those responsibilities aren't all tasked to like one person, right? And that kind of goes back to something someone dropped in the, the Q&A, like how you deal with burnout, you know, like we don't want to, we shouldn't task translation to like the one like really fluent Spanish speaker like that's involved in 
like this one group, for instance, right? Like the, the question should be, how do we make sure like this organization is accessible without demanding like the free labor of like bilingual volunteers, so to speak, or, or making sure that if we are asking for volunteer help with that, we're spreading the workload out. We're not making it more difficult than it has to be. So I'd say that's like a challenge and both like an opportunity for KC tenants that I think that we're still working on or trying to address. Uh, City Life, uh, LA Tenants Union people, what do you think? What, what are some challenges that you all face? Uh, some of, of the challenges that we, we do still uh, meet uh, feel at City Life is uh, basically racism, right, supremacy, folks who internalize oppression, you know, uh, when they come to our space, when they are uh, meeting, uh, they sometimes come uh, with the assumptions, you know, that uh, what they want, what they're going to do, some of them are entitled to get their ways. And if they meet resistance, they feel that um, we are not a good organization. So imagine when you find folks who think that way, the amount of resources that you have to spend to, to actually build with them, to include them in the community, understanding, uh, yes, they do think a certain way, but they're still valuable to us and how to find that common ground with them. Sometimes it takes a little bit longer than we expect. And yeah, that's something that we're still struggling with, but that we're fighting hard against. I think um, something, sorry, Lizette. Um, I think something that uh, Latu, it's, it's interesting because I, I think we can be quite good at um, allowing for representation across the city, but at the same time, we really struggle with that and, and have had, you know, one of our last union-wide like general meetings was about white supremacy within the organization and how do we counteract that? And that conversation was tough and I and can't get resolved in one meeting, but, you know, trying to make space for that. But then, you know, at the same time, we have a horizontal structure for the most part. And that poses a lot of challenges when it comes to like getting things done or trying to have a cohesive message because you have one local who really wants to side with neighborhood councils. And then you have the general ideology of Latu, which is like, we don't really side with neighborhood councils because they, sorry about that, Los Angeles. Uh, we don't really side with neighborhood councils because they are not on the side of the tenants, you know? So we constantly come against that um, sort of clash of ideology um, and then with that horizontal structure, we have to have these conversations of like, okay, well, um, we as an organization want to go this way, but are we now telling everybody what to think? You know, like, so there's, it's always that, that you're on the edge of going, okay, well, we want to make a statement. And then you're kind of like, can we make that statement? Do we need to pass it by, you know, like make sure we've kind of run it through the locals, see, get everybody's feeling about it. And Los Angeles is massive. So it has really, you know, trying to, 
to have everybody come to the table while also trying to like move, be decisive. Sometimes those, it's like a really crunchy process at times. And so I think we're still trying to really figure out the best way to do that and be effective. Lizette, go ahead. Um, no, I mean, you pretty much kind of said, you know, I think it comes back to what you also said earlier about that, that um, bridging that gap between those longstanding members and then the quote unquote gentrifiers, because I think, at least for us in LA Tenants Union, that is a big thing. You know, a lot of the displacement, and I'm sure in a lot of other your cities as well, is to some extent gentrification. Um, you know, we are in a very huge process right now of like massive gentrification throughout the city, uh, throughout the county, even things like that. Um, so I think that's one of the biggest things that is happening at the moment. Um, you know, I don't know how many times I've heard some people talk about how, oh, well, I moved from this area that was getting gentrified, which might have been a little nicer in my particular area and ended up here. So, you know, so like people are getting pushed around, things are happening and gentrification is causing all this, but there's also still this like battle between like, well, I've lived here my whole life, like myself, you know, I think had it not been prior to, had I not been as like, involved and educated and all that as I am with all this organizing stuff, you know, I could have easily been just like other people that I've heard. I could have been like, I've lived here my entire life, but Nessa just recently moved into Highland Park. Who is she? You know, but that mindset happens and it still, even to me, sometimes happens because it's just lived experience. It's all these different things. And so we are working very much on all that. And I do also want to say that like Ronell is correct, you know, not only do we deal with like kind of like white supremacist oppression, but there is things like homophobia and gender oppression. You know, it's one of the biggest things where we have felt that a lot of our women have been maybe just put aside or not given a voice that they should have been given within maybe not lot too wide, but there has been on local levels, some on lot too wide levels, uh, as well as with the homophobia and things like that. Um, so it's just kind of knowing how to bring all these people um, past those things and back into this, this movement and the housing and the fact that we all are here working towards the same thing. Thanks. I think we're getting ready. Uh, Gabby, did you have something you wanted to say? I saw you lean yeah. into the mic. <laughs> really good at getting these visual cues. <laughs> but I'd say, you know, something City Life has struggled with that, you know, is, is, that I'm, you know, it's probably something that is common amongst all, all of our you know, organizations and, um, but right now, or like the past year has been, there's been a lot of transitions internally within City Life. Um, our executive director, she took a philanthropist role to radicalize money. Um, and, you know, she was a, a such a, a grounding part of the organization that it really, it, it, it was a, a little disrupting, you know, internally. And internally, right, we were looking for new EDs and now we have two co-EDs, they're amazing, they're wonderful. But at the same time, like now we we have like the administrative person, like we need to find, we, we were at a point where like, all right, we gotta like fill in this. Oh, the, the communications director is transitioning. Oh, we gotta, we gotta figure that out. Um, oh, the laws are just changing like every other, Every other, every other week, like we got to figure that out too. Um, <laughs> oh, the, this, this leader is leaving um, because they don't like so-and-so like, you know, we were touching that earlier. So there's just like so many layers of transition and, and transitions internally that 
you know, it was, it was tough. You know, we were getting through it. We were, we were trained literally to get through certain transitions, which we're really appreciative of. Um, but you know, it's, it's hard. Transition is never easy. It's never, transitions aren't always, you know, transitions are, cycles are natural, right? But transitions aren't, aren't easy, you know? Like it's, it's a process and, and we're still in that process. Like things are still transitioning internally right now as we speak. And they've been transitioning for now over a year. Um, and I guess like one other thing that I'd like to add is that I have noticed that, um, you know, in the past few years, like city life, you know, we're struggling, we were struggling and we definitely have gotten better in the past year and, and getting youth involved, like youth that are, are not, you know, trying to fulfill a college internship at City Life. You know, youth who, who, who are from these directly impacted neighborhoods and youth that, I mean, ideally like we can pay too, right? Because they need work, they need to get, they need, you know, they need to provide for themselves at some, at, at, a, at a, to an extent. And, you know, I, I definitely recognize that, you know, we've gotten better in, in the past year or so, but it's definitely, something that, you know, studio life has, has struggled and struggled with um, historically, I'd say. That was incredibly helpful for thinking through like some of my own work. So thanks for sharing like the uh, challenges and uh, successes there. We're getting ready, we're getting close to the end of this year. Um, so I wanna do a couple more question and answer uh, questions here. Uh, the first is kind of a combo uh, Bill and Ruby question, uh, which is how can we project a visionary idea of collective housing, uh, as was in the case in Vienna in the 30s? I, I don't know what that is, but uh, linked to working class power and organizing around a Green New Deal type project. Uh, and then combined with that is like uh, Ruby's, are you all thinking about uh, social housing? So yeah, what what does it look like for you all in your organizations to kind of project out an idea of housing that is different than what we have now? For one thing, every single tenant association that we organize, in addition to fighting for a collective bargaining agreement or an end to the eviction or something like that, they're all fighting to have the building moved into social ownership. So social ownership defined as tenant ownership, land trust, community development corporations, public housing for that matter. And uh, anything that gets the housing out of the market so that's not bought and sold as a commodity in the market. So all our tenant associations are demanding that. And when they win it, we really have to, and we do, and, we, and we're, about to, we're about to do a big celebration next weekend on getting a building out of the market. So we really wanna uplift those examples and make it clear why that's better and uh, give examples. I, I often give the story of my own limited equity co-op where I live, where the rent has gone up a little bit over the last 20 years, but surrounding rents have you know, gone up four and five times what they were. So just giving those, those examples of why socially owned housing is better. Yeah, I, will, I would say that you know, community land trusts are a big thing. Um, even also, I know in certain areas here for rent control, based on our, our rent control laws here in, in LA, we, we have this thing that we could potentially push and we should be pushing our local pol uh, politicians is for eminent domain. 
Um, and it's the same thing. It's fine for them to buy these things and keep them as rent-controlled housing because that's a lot of the things that end up happening with a lot of evictions, especially a lot of our Ellis Act evictions uh, around here are due to that, um, is trying to get all these people out because just because you have someone, as while you have someone living there, obviously you have to maintain these rent control uh, laws, but then there's nothing here that stops them from, if these people leave, how long do you have to wait before you spike it up to the market, obviously? And so this is what happens a lot of times is take them all out, demolish the building, build something new, and that's it. You've already just tripled, quadrupled, whatever the amount of rent that you're paying. So yeah, so like eminent domain, community land trust, all that collective bargaining is also something that kind of lots you <clears throat> wants to heavily focus on. What about Casey tenants, Brandon? Yeah, um, I'm actually glad Ruby uh, asked this question. She might have been sent me up to bring this up, but um, Casey Tenants actually recently announced a proposal for a people's housing trust fund in, in Kansas City. And so the, the dream, if we can clear the roadblock, that is a lot of our local politicians. So that's a whole other, a whole other rant. Like the, the dream for this housing trust fund would essentially be, you know, a sustainable source of money to fund you know, the development of housing in Kansas City that is that is truly affordable for like poor and working class like tenants. And our model would do this through like defunding the police, defunding, you know, evictors and taxing gentrifiers in, in Kansas City, right? So it's taking money away from sources that cause our communities harm and kind of reinvesting them into this healing institution um, that in our vision is, is governed by tenants, right? Because uh, a lot of times when we talk about housing trust funds, you know, you look at who controls where the money goes to. It's not like tenants. A lot of times it's developers. Sometimes there might be political influences in that process. We want to make sure that this isn't just a slush fund for developers, right? Like it's truly built for developing social housing, you know, and when we talk about social housing, you know, we're talking about, you know, not just building places for poor people to live, right? Like, like I, that, that is a clear, there's a huge hurdle, I think, to kind of getting to that spot is this idea that we're, what we're really trying to do is just build these, these places for poor people and trying to herd them somewhere, you know, and that's not what we're trying to do, right? What we're really trying to do is we're trying to provide a place for you know, everyone to live, but, you know, people from a lower income background might be subsidized to live there, whereas somebody that can afford to pay more would pay more, right? So it's important that when we're talking about housing, you know, it's it's not just for like poor people, it's for, it's for everyone, um, you know, and I think that kind of can get us closer to this vision of social housing, which in Vienna, that's how it works, you know, it's, uh, the housing isn't like some, um, like some poor, you know, building in shambles that's kind of tucked away on the edge of a town. You know, it's these really vibrant buildings in the middle of like city square with like parks and childcare facilities nearby. And anybody can live in those buildings. Uh, but those that are lower income are subsidized to live there, like by the city. Um, so that's kind of one example, I think, of how we're trying to, to make that a reality. Thanks. And another question uh, comes from Desmond. Uh, this is he's echoing an earlier question. Uh, but do you see any prospects for connecting tenant and labor organizing 
uh, either through partnerships between trade unions and tenant unions, dual membership, joint campaigns, et cetera. So I guess like this is kind of the big question, which is like, where do you guys see potential for overlap uh, in different aspects uh, of the socialist movement or different aspects uh, or different social movements uh, with tenant organizing? I, I see it. I, I'm such an optimist guy. I see it as a match made in heaven, if I can say that, because usually the folks who are getting evicted are the folks who have to work two or three jobs, you know, to make ends meet. Right there, they one in the same. So if the worker understands, you know, uh, uh, the fact that he's looking for 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 collective bargaining, that's the same thing that small homeowner, that tenant is also looking for. Right there, not only they have the same, uh, the same agenda, the same outlook, if they organize or cross-organize, teach each other, support each other's actions. If, if labor is organizing something somewhere, that, that member of the tenant union should know and go support labor. And if the tenant association is organizing something, labor can support too. And, and it just keep on going without saying, you know, it, it is in our, in each other's DNA, you know, to work together. And if we ever cannot change the, the, the political economy, it starts right there. Because uh, we have a strong enough base we have the tools that we need. We just need to come out and, and stop being afraid. Reach out to each other and say, what can I help you with? You start with a simple conversation. What do you need from me? And that's it. Would anyone else like to pitch in on this? Um, I definitely want to share a, uh, an antidote from a recent fight that happened in East Boston, um, which is a one of the neighborhoods in, in the city of Boston, that's like majority like immigrant undocumented, like usually Latin America, mostly like Latin American, certain parts of the Middle East. And there was this giant, one of the biggest luxury development proposals that was going to happen in East Boston, 10,000 luxury units, but uh, funded by HYM management, um, which had its prime investor, which was a billionaire from Texas. He literally owns a mountain. Um, <laughs> and yeah, William Bruce, William Bruce Harrison. He loves to say his name. And what's really interesting is that that project development is the only project, the first project development in the city of Boston that had a project labor agreement and a project development agreement. And a lot of the labor, like construction related labor unions were in on it hard with the project labor agreement. And when it came to the point where, you know, the Boston Planning Development Agency, which is one of the few agencies in the country that both includes development and planning in, in the same agency, it's a whole nother rant, another topic. You know, when they had their uh, like public audience hearing before they made their final vote to either approve or reject this proposal, the union recruited almost so many of its workers to testify for the luxury development 
not at all criticizing the affordability rate, not at all criticizing the amount, like the percentages of affordable units in that development. And there was just so much tension between those labor unions and, you know, like the housing justice organizers. It's just like, yo, like we're on the same team. Like, why aren't, why aren't you talking to us? Why aren't you trying to organize with us? Like what, what, why are we on different teams right now? Like why, why are you pushing the billionaire's agenda forward at this moment? That's going to put the families at work in your labor unions and potentially displace them farther from the neighborhoods they're currently living in. So I think at this very moment that, at least in the city of Boston, right, there's, there's a tension between construction labor unions and housing justice organizers when there really shouldn't be attention, right? Because there's a tension because they want work, you know, they want to work, they, 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 they want these buildings to get built because there's work there. But there's a, there's a very much responsible way in doing that, right? By making sure that these developments are accountable to the affordability we need in the various neighborhoods they're trying to build in. And there's very much a, a tension between worker centers, right, who are representing union-less workers who are janitors um, and, you know, doing other, you know, um, labor along those lines. And there's a tension even between those worker centers and the labor unions that have been historically, you know, hiring white men. So, you know, we want, we want, we want to be part of that path where we come more together and, and you know, it's happening slowly, but, you know, we need to hold them accountable. And, you know, if you have any, you got some advice, let us know. <laughs> yeah. So uh, maybe uh, Vanessa, I saw that you answered, you might have a quick answer to Elizabeth's question about, uh, how uh, groups, how you all have uh, leveraged technology and social media for the organization, what worked, what hasn't, and what are some best practices? Maybe you could give a quick answer because we're at the 10 o'clock mark on the East Coast. I'm going to be so fast. So um, basically in law two, like I mentioned, we have different committees. One of them is the media committee, which specifically is about, um, you know, uh, messaging or putting stuff into the press or being really active on social media and you know like at a local level there are media committees that you know there's a instagram password and and they kind of shoot their own local messaging out and then the lot too wide um, media committee will kind of hype that up or we will put out we'll put out little like facts about um, SB 91 or like new laws that are out to try and get sort of like a mass education through social media. Um, and that has been super effective. I do want to mention that a challenge of that is, is language justice is saying like, um, okay, what requests do we have coming in from locals that want, what do they want to know about? And then shooting it over to our like very small and humble design team, which I'm on um, and, you know, trying to go, okay, we can put this together. Can we get somebody to translate it? And all of that like needs to be posted in two days, you know, like, so there are challenges to trying to keep up with that. 
But ultimately we have found that it is such a great way to reach not only people that are in the union currently, but maybe, you know, just like somebody can shoot it off to their friend and go like, hey, there's a march in Chinatown, you live nearby, do you wanna join? Because we're putting that out there constantly. Um, we post long form texts on like a medium page or we get that picked up from other um, outlets. So it's definitely, I would say media has been a really large tool for Latu, but you know, it's growing. We're working on specific websites for like, um, uh, like that tenant council I'm mentioning. I mentioned we're building a website for them to like put all of the like crazy maintenance problems up and just document it all. And then we can drive people to that as we're writing about it in some of that long form content. So it's like a really great way to have tenants you know, post blog posts about what's going on just to kind of keep it all on the record. So we found a way to use media both as um, a, an organizing tool, an informational tool and a documentation tool. Was that quick enough? I don't know. I think that was, that was a great answer. Yeah, I feel that was quick. Um, so we're, we're at the end of this amazing workshop. Um, maybe I'll give everyone an opportunity to say a few last things before they go. Maybe shout out a website or social media since we're talking about that in that last question. So who wants to, who wants to kick it off here with the, with the last few words? No one wants to end the meeting, uh, but Brandon, why don't you? Oh, I was going to say, yeah, I can start. Uh, first, I just want to like say how grateful I am to have been a part of this, you know, um, as someone I'd say I'm relatively, you know, new on the organizing scene. Like, it was not only great getting to learn from everyone on the panel, but to also just see, you know, how big this, this movement is, you know, we got folks from all over the place, you know, listening and asking great questions, making me, you know, think a lot more about how we do what we do. Um, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm really glad I got to be here. Uh, I dropped my contact info in the chat too. So feel free to hit me up you know, for, you know, anything KC tennis related, but yeah, it, it was great getting to be a part of this conversation. All right. Who's uh, next? Yeah. I could say to, I'm, I'm glad I was with you guys. I learned a lot and I, I feel good about what we shared also. Uh, so, but I wanted to, to, to close uh, with a quote from um, Monsenor Camara of Brazil. He said, when I give, when I give food to the poor, they call me a saint. But when I ask why they are poor, they call me a communist. I'll pass it to somebody else. Gabby, Steve, we'll keep it in Boston. Um, yeah, no, I just definitely want to echo that. Definitely honored to have been able to share this space with amazing leaders from across the country. Um, and and yeah, like personally, yeah, I started organizing in immigrant rights spaces and it's it's just crazy how much intersectionality there is in, in housing, immigration, trauma. Like there's just so much trauma in, in the work we're doing. Like sometimes we have to double up as social workers, you know, <laughs> we're organized so social workers. Um, and yeah, no, just, you know, when we fight, we win. Cuando luchamos, ganamos. So, like, 
we got to keep going. Um, and thank you all. Have a great night. Steve. Yes. Great honor to be here. And thank you all for, for especially guys from solidarity for organizing it. And just to follow on Ronell, I'll have to match your quote with another quote. Um, the housing crisis doesn't exist because the system's not working. The housing crisis exists because that's the way the system works. All right, Vanessa, Lizette, your turns. Uh, I am so excited that I a got what I felt was kind of randomly asked to be a part of this panel because I was like. I don't know if I can do that. And B, so happy to get to hear um, from other organizers, especially some that I've like followed through social media and to really be able to dive into these conversations. I'm so grateful. And I look forward to hearing more about what you all do. And then everybody that attended, really exciting to see how this is sweeping the nation. Um, I feel everything that everyone else is feeling, but I will say that I think for me, it definitely has kind of sparked a new energy in this like organizing and the work that we've been doing. I think it just really helped and it was very reassuring to see some of the reactions, not only what I was speaking, but also hearing other people very much just echo things or give shout outs to each other, to myself. And so I think this has really, really helped to kind of bring together and to really show that like we're on to something. And we're, we're, we're getting there and we're just get we're getting there closer and closer and we can we can do this and so i'm just excited for all of us and all the work that we want to do together um individually and i just i wish the best for everybody um and so yeah like thank you as well and super honored to be here thanks thanks so much to everyone uh who is on the panel i really got I really enjoy getting to know you over the last month, the ones that I met in the, in the pre-meeting stuff. Um, I've learned an incredible amount about organizing and an incredible amount of, about tenant organizing, which seems to be a space where there's a lot of energy. So thanks so much for sharing your experiences and your knowledge. I also want to thank um, all of the other people from Solidarity who are on the committee that helped out with this, Johanna Ansar, uh, Stephen, uh, Peter Sollenberger, uh, and Jennifer, you guys rule. Um, this wouldn't be happening without you. And also our amazing and fantastic uh, translator, Gabriela, who uh, really killed it today uh, and taught us uh, how to use this software for translation and make sure everyone knows how to use it. We wouldn't be able to do this without you. I'll close uh, with a couple other things. I'll shout out, if you want to know more about Solidarity, uh, Stephen has it on the logo there. It's solidarity-us.org. You can find us uh, on Twitter. I think it's solidarityus1986. Um, we have a podcast, Socialism from Below. We have a great conversation with some other organizers from KC Tenants about housing organizing and about building tenant power that continues a lot of themes here. Um, we have uh, a publication called Against the Current. You can go to their website, againstthecurrent.org, uh, and they have a Twitter account, ATC underscore mag. So once again, I just want to say thank you so much to the amazing people who are on this panel, the amazing people who asked questions uh, that prompted a lot of fantastic and interesting conversations. And I, I'm hoping that we can, you know, uh, get together and have another conversation about uh, tenant power 
in the near future, uh, one way or another with you guys or with others. So thanks again. We're going to be doing another one of these uh, about uh, labor stuff in the future. Be on the lookout for that. We're going to keep you posted. Um, so until next time, solidarity forever. Uh, take care, everyone.